Well, good morning again. It's good to see you all. Thanks for gathering in this place. Thanks for bringing the church into uh, this sanctuary space, and we're just really glad that you're here. My name is Jamie. It's my great privilege to serve as one of the pastors here at Cross Point. So if you're somebody that's new, we've never been introduced, hopefully get a chance to connect after the service. Uh, those of you that are gathering with us online, thanks for bringing the church into your living room, around your dining room table. Thanks for inviting us into uh, those spaces. And so I'm really excited to continue through this journey, through the book of John. We're doing this series called Come and See. And so we're spending the bulk of 2021 in this because we feel like it's so important just to understand what is the story of Jesus? What is he inviting us into? In fact, today we're going to hear one of the great invitations that Jesus gives that we might actually find life and satisfaction. And so if you're somebody that's been a Christian for as long as you can remember, you're somebody that is here this morning or watching online and you're like, I don't know if I believe any of this, regardless of where you fall, kind of on that continuum or spectrum, just so glad that you're here. And I think this text will have much to, to speak to all of us because there's this continual invitation, come and see, come and experience the grace of God. And so we're going to be finishing up John chapter 7 this morning. So if you got a Bible, you can turn there, John chapter 7, verses 37 to 52. But as you're getting ready, I'm going to read it in just a moment. Let me put before you this quote that might be familiar to some of you from a great book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And in it, Lewis talks about this ache, this longing, this desire. In fact, in many ways, this book of John is helping us sort of pay attention to that. Like, what is it that is going on in our hearts if we would actually pause and stop and contemplate? We're not, I'm not good at that. I won't project onto you. But my guess is you might struggle with that a bit to just sort of sit back and to wonder and to contemplate what, what is actually of utmost importance? What should I be giving my time and my energy to? What would it look like to have a life that's oriented around Christ and his kingdom? So Lewis talks about these desires and he talks about the fact that oftentimes there can be this disconnect. So hear these words. He speaks of not only of humanity, but really all of creation. He says this, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger? Well, there is such a thing as food. And a duckling wants to swim? Well, there is such a thing as water. And men feel sexual desire? Well, there is such a thing as sex. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. He says, no, probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. What a beautiful and wonderful synopsis of this calling and also like this ache that we feel and we're to pay attention to that. And what Jesus is gonna address here in John chapter seven is this longing, this, he's gonna use the language of thirst and of water that is on offer. And so my hope and prayer for all of us this week as we come into this space is that this word might speak powerfully to whatever you're dealing with in life, whatever you brought in here, the things that are spoken, the things that are not spoken, the things that maybe you just got this general sense of like something's off, something's not right. I don't even know how to give language to it, but man, I feel burdened and distracted or just maybe a heaviness. 
And there's a great invitation that we're gonna see. And so John chapter seven, as always too, you can go to cplife.church on your phone right now or tablet and swipe over. You'll see a card that says message notes. The text for this morning is there. There's space to take notes. Anything that I put up on the slides this morning, even if you're like, oh, I like that quote from C.S. Lewis, it should be there. And so that way it saves your hand trying to you know, write all that down. But John chapter seven, verse 37 to 52. Let me go ahead and read this. So this is God's word for us this morning. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And the one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. And he said this about the Spirit. Those who believe in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Verse 40. When some from the crowd heard these words, they said, this truly is the prophet. And others said, this is the Messiah. But some said, well, surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David lived. And so the crowd was divided because of him. And some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Verse 45, then the servants came to the chief priests and to the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him? They're asking like, why didn't you arrest him? Why didn't you take him in? And the servants answered, well, no one ever spoke like this. Then the Pharisees responded to them, are you fooled too? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd which doesn't know the law is accursed. Now Nicodemus, the one who had came to him previously and was one of them, said to them, our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's, going, what he's doing, does it? You aren't from Galilee too, are you? They replied, investigate and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So this is God's word to us this morning. We are going to spend the first part, looking at what is really Jesus' invitation, and I want to put before you, just consider this for a moment. Right out of, the, out of the gate, all right, there's this crowd that's gathered. I will explain and unpack that more, but Jesus says these words. In fact, he doesn't say them sort of quietly off to the side, like, hey, hey, guys, if anyone's thirsty, come over here, I've got, got some water. He tells, it tells us, he cries out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, now, it's not remarkable just that he used a loud voice and that he cried out. What is really remarkable is as Eric, Pastor Eric preached last week and what we've seen in chapter 7, already people are being organized to arrest Jesus, to take him in. There are some that want to put him to death. They do not want him on the scene. And so Jesus in this moment feels so strongly about these words, this invitation, that this particular group of people, the thousands that are gathered, that they might actually hear him and know about this living water, risks his life, risks being arrested, risks all of it, and doesn't shy away and hide back in the corner, doesn't just pull a few people over, but rather says this, if anyone is thirsty, men, women, regardless of socioeconomic background, regardless of race, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, it does not matter. The qualifier here to get in on this work of Jesus is, are you thirsty? Not are you awesome, not have you done all the right things, not as, as we even heard a moment ago, like have climbed the ladder. It's none of that. It simply is, do you thirst? And that invitation is open to everyone. And what was true a couple thousand years ago, praise God, is true right here in this moment, regardless of what you've done, regardless of all that you've contributed to in the brokenness of the world and the ways you've experienced the brokenness, the ways you've sinned and been sinned against, the invitation 
If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And Jesus does not shy away. He is not bashful. He cries aloud and offers this. And I hope and pray that you and I would hear that this morning, that we would hear not my words, all right? You don't need to hear my thoughts or opinions or any of that. Like we need to hear Jesus' call, Jesus' invitation to say, hey, you here in Altamont Springs, Florida, right here, right now on June 6, 2021, come to me. Are you thirsty? Come. Now, Jesus is saying these words in a very particular context. So bear with me for a moment. I find this stuff fascinating and interesting, and if you don't, um, you can just nod your head like you do and not hurt my feelings, okay? But to understand what Jesus is doing, we have to understand that there's a particular context. There are some practices, one could say, that are taking place here. So let's look at this for a moment, because if we understand culturally and historically what's happening, that these words that Jesus speaks... They're not just random. Jesus didn't walk out, you know, out in the, the, the streets one day and be like, oh, I wonder what random phrase I should utter. And I'll say it loudly for all the people to hear. He's speaking something very intentionally, that there's a particular practices. Now, this section starts out by saying these words. Right before Jesus' declaration, it says this. On the last and most important day of the festival... This is John's way, as he's writing this story, as he's recording these things, it's meant to clue us in. This is a loaded phrase. This is significant. We're not to miss this. And yet, because we're modern people living a couple thousand years ago, an entirely different part of the world with a lot different culture and background, it could be easy to miss that. But I think we need to understand it. So what is taking place here, all right, goes by a couple of different names. You might hear it spoken of as a feast or the festival of tabernacles or booths, all right? And it was a way that God's people would celebrate and the way they would understand and kind of enter in and remember the story of God's deliverance. So if you know the story of the Bible, maybe you've heard, even if you don't know it well, you've probably heard of Moses who delivered God's people out of slavery in Egypt. They passed through the Red Sea, they're out in the wilderness, and as they're getting ready to even enter the promised land, God gives particular words. He gives particular instruction, and he tells them, hey, I want you to remember that you were this sort of nomadic people that you traveled, that I sustained you in the wilderness. And so literally what would happen in these big feasts or festivals, tens of thousands of people would descend upon Jerusalem, that they would come back and that they would gather. And this particular festival, those of you that are like, oh, I'm, you know, I like camping, all right? Like you might actually like this. Um, the rest of you are like camping. That just sounds awful. But regardless of where you fall, here's what, we, what would take place. That Thousands of people would descend, and part of the way that they would enact this or reenact it is they would literally build these shelters, all right, these sort of lean-to sort of tents, if you will, and they would live in those because God had said, for seven days, for an entire week, I want you to remember this particular story, the ways that you traveled, the ways that you literally camped in the wilderness, the ways in which I provided for you. Don't forget that story. Don't forget that I delivered you. Don't forget that I provided you everything that you needed. And so it was a way for people very practically, like, okay, we're gonna enter in. And so that at one level is what's going on. But there's also some significant things that were going on with water. It's not random that Jesus begins to speak of thirst and of water and of coming to him and drinking, all right? 
What would have been taking place here during this is really, really fascinating, all right? People that have studied this and historians that, that know this would, would talk about what would take place a couple thousand years ago there in Jerusalem. So let me just kind of summarize it for you. What you would have is for literally six days, every morning, there'd be a priest that would go and he had this giant golden pitcher, all right? Uh, got it at his wedding, never used it, so he took it off the shelf, whatever, right? So he got, he's got this giant golden pitcher, and every morning he would go down, he'd be assigned to go down to the water, to the pool of Siloam, all right? And a crowd would follow him, and there as he dips this into the water, there would literally be a choir, sort of this throng of people, and they would chant and recite and just declare loudly the words out of Isaiah 12, verse 3, which says this, with joy you will draw water, from the wells of salvation. So picture the scene. Priest, pool of Siloam, giant golden pitcher, and then people gathered around, and over and over again, they're saying in unison, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Like they're just making a noise. I mean, it's just this epic sort of celebration. And then they would follow the priest. And they would carry it back to the temple. And when they reached the water gate, somebody would take out um, what's referred to as the shofar, which is the ram's horn. And they would, they would basically blow the ram's horn like three times. So now the people are chanting a phrase out of Isaiah, giant golden pitcher filled with water, the ram's horn. I mean, there's just all this noise, all this commotion, all these things that are happening, all right? And then they, when they arrived at the temple, they would proceed around the altar. And they would do this each and every day. And as they processed around the altar, they would literally then shift to singing the Psalms. I don't know if you know that. The book of Psalms oftentimes were sung. Psalms 113 through 118. They had particular meaning and significance in reference to like their, God's intentions and hope for his people. And so they would sing this. And it was a way for them to sort of dial into the, the story that, that they were part of. All right. All the while, too, they had these bundles, what were called, uh, I don't know if I'm saying this right, lulabs, which are these bundles of myrtle and palm, uh, palm and willow bound up with like citrus fruit because it was also the time of harvest. And so the, the palms and all that was a way to remember the shelters that they lived in, but it was also a time of harvest. And so they'd have elements of that and they would carry those. And so they're singing the songs and they're chanting and there's the golden pitcher and all of this is taking place. And the priests also had like these poplar branches and willow that they would carry. And so it's just this crazy scene, all right? And then the golden pitcher was taken to the priest who was on duty at the temple, all right? And there at the altar, there were two silver bowls. And one, he would take the golden pitcher and he would fill the silver bowl with all the water. And the other, he would fill with wine to the point that they would begin to overflow and they would run down the altar creating this particular stream. And these bowls, they would do that each and every day. And on the seventh day, the processional, the process, all of it, they would do seven times. And so it's in this context when John tells us on the last and most important day of the festival, this processional is happening seven times. Giant golden pitcher, people chanting out of Isaiah, carrying branches, carrying fruits of the harvest, singing the psalms together. All of this, pitchers filled with water and of wine, and it begins to overflow. So that's historically what's going on. And in this, all right, there was this belief, like what was popular during that time is that when the Messiah would come, he would provide water as Moses had done for them on their journey through the wilderness. 
So all of this stuff is sort of operating in the background. So why did they do this? Like what was actually going on? So at one level, I made mention of this, it's the time of harvest. And so it was both a time of rejoicing, but also in the fall, you're entering into the season where droughts are very possible in that part of the world. And so it was a way that they would plead and they would pray and they would ask God, thank you so much for the harvest. We celebrate that, but will you provide again? Will you send the rains? Will you grow the crops? Will you bring us another harvest? Can we trust you? You've been good in this past year. Will you be good again? So that, that was part of what was going on. But then also more significantly with the water, there's both a remembering and then a looking ahead. And so the remembering was this, is that there was this looking back. And so if you know the story of the Exodus, as they're in the wilderness, apparently people every once in a while, I can't imagine this, but they're prone to complain, all right? I'm sure none of us do that, but there in the wilderness, they begin to grumble, they begin to complain, and they're finding themselves very, very thirsty, which is a legitimate thing, but they're literally like ready to put Moses to death. Moses is ready to put all of them to death, all right? And there's just this whole just drama. It's just terrible. And God tells Moses, listen, watch what I'm going to do. And so there out in the wilderness, there's a sort of looking back. He says, hey, you see that rock over there, all right? And he tells Moses to do what? To go and to strike the rock. And this is spoken of in the, the book of Exodus in chapter 17. And so there's this looking back. And so one level, when the water's being poured out and all this ceremony, it was a way for them to remember God provided the water. And there, as they poured the water over this rock, this altar of sacrifice, they remembered, this is the story, our God who provides. But it was also a way to look ahead. It wasn't just looking back. I think this is where it gets really fascinating, is there was these messianic expectations. And so particularly at a time of the festival, you can imagine, right? And this is like a massive tailgating thing. They're all camped out in the parking lot. They got their lean-to tents, right? They've probably been drinking some wine. I mean, there's like this, this whole scene that's going on day after day after day. The people are together. You've got thousands of people that are gathered there. And there's this sort of feeling in the air, like, when is God going to send the Messiah? When are we going to be liberated from the hands of the Romans? Like, when is God going to lead us in another exodus? And so all of these things that they were celebrating was, yes, a looking back, but it was also just sort of loaded, like it was thick in the air, this expectation of, when's God going to do this again? Because one of the things that they believed about water was this. The prophet Ezekiel, he spoke of this in Ezekiel chapter 47, says, hey, when the Messiah comes... Though there is no water that flows from the temple or down through the town of Jerusalem, through the city, there is actually going to be water. And it's not going to be normal, ordinary water. It's going to be water that would actually bring healing everywhere it goes. So the prophet gets this, gets this vision. It says, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east, and the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. And then a few verses later, it says this, for this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. So in the consciousness of the people there, as all of this festival, all of these rituals, these festivities are taking place, there's also this way, there's sort of this symbolism that's bound up in, hey, we're pouring the water and we're pouring the wine over the altar and it begins to flow like a little stream. But one day, there's gonna be a mighty gushing river that flows from the temple 
And as it flows, it's not going to be like normal, ordinary water. It's literally going to bring flourishing, healing, renewal everywhere it goes. And they believed when the Messiah showed up, this is what's going to take place. Now, it's with that background, it's with that going on that Jesus steps in and makes a promise and what, a, a proclamation of sorts here. That he shows up and in light of this stands up and cries, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And the one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. Jesus is looking at all this and all the significance of all the water and all the longing, and he stops and he says, here's the invitation. I am here. I'm the one that's going to provide this water. I'm the one that is going to bring transformation and renewal. And yes, he speaks of what would well up within us, but there's also this side of it. And a lot of people that translate the, you know, translate the scriptures would say, probably a more literal reading, and I'll put it up on the screen, is this. He's saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And if he believes, let him drink. And as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from his belly. Speaking of the Messiah, when he shows up, all right, that's what's going to take place. That water is going to flow. It's no wonder that the crowds have the reaction that they do. Some are intrigued, they're fascinated, they're wondering, and you've got the religious leaders who want to put him to death because Jesus, in no uncertain terms, is making some bold proclamations. Yes, there's a promise that this is gonna be fulfilled when he sends the Spirit, and we'll look at that more in a moment, but Jesus is declaring to them by everything that is happening, at one level he's saying, hey, the Messiah is here, and it's me. They would have just been singing the words of Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And so Jesus is saying, this all points to me. I'm the Messiah. Jesus also is declaring that he is the new temple. The temple was where the presence of God was. And he's saying that is actually, you remember the story? He says the temple's gonna be destroyed and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they think it's the physical structure that you know, took decades to build. But he's speaking of his life his death, his ultimate resurrection. And so what you have here now is Jesus saying, hey, I'm the new temple. Zechariah 14, verse 8 says, on that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, similar to Ezekiel 47. Jesus is that source. And what they believed one day would happen in the temple, he's saying, no, 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 that's coming from me because I actually am the temple. I am the place of that not only were the sacrifices that are made, but I am the sacrifice, and I'm restoring you to the presence of God. And in his most bold declaration, what Jesus is saying is God has shown up in the flesh. Jesus is God. The prophet Jeremiah spoke these words. In Jeremiah 2, verse 13, he says this. Look how God identifies himself. For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. How does God identify himself? The fountain of living water. What is Jesus putting on offer here? This living water. Jesus is saying, no, no, guys, you have gone and dug these cisterns, these wells, they're full of nasty, murky water, and you keep drinking that, thinking it'll satisfy, when in fact, you've abandoned me. That's what's actually taken place. There's a double evil, because you moved away from me, and then you went and thought, I can do this on my own, and all it's resulted in is these broken cisterns, these dirty wells, this polluted water, and you wonder why you're not flourishing. And God says, I'm that living water. And now Jesus comes on the scene and begins to make this invitation, this proclamation. 
So all the lights on the dashboard would have been going on. Like he is making a huge monumental claim in this, making multiple claims in this. And now the crowd has an opportunity to respond. And you think, you would hope, they'd be like, well, how can I get in on that? But because they have a heart like I have a heart, the reality is oftentimes we're filled with pride. And we don't want to submit. And though it's as simple as saying, I thirst, they can't bring themselves want to do that. And so what we have is this massive problem that takes place. And so you look, we'll just kind of skim through 40 to, to 52, you see various responses from people. Some are saying it's a prophet, some are saying maybe it's, you know, the Messiah, um, but then people are even confused, like, well, does he, he, Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, right? He's supposed to come from Bethlehem already. This is kind of John's subtle way, or maybe not so subtle way of saying, even some of the experts who thought they knew the Bible thought they knew the story, thought they'd figured Jesus out. They actually haven't, because we know, right? Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. He's from David's line, like all of that. So they're already missing it. There he is right before them, and they're like, well, it couldn't possibly be him because the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And he's like, hey, take a look at my birth certificate. That's where I'm from. Like that is just another way to say it's possible to be around Jesus and yet miss it. Because there's something that stands in the way, and it's our pride, and it's our arrogance. It's our unwillingness to say, I thirst. The summer after fourth grade, I believe it was, I was going, so going into to fifth grade, um, those of you that know me, like, I love to play basketball, like, it was just, like, all I wanted to do, I wanted to watch basketball, play basketball, literally, you hear the stories, the kids, like, up north, like, hey, I watched a basketball game, I'm all inspired, I'm gonna go shovel the driveway so that I can shoot hoops and wear gloves because my hands are gonna freeze, that was me. Like, that was what I, what I did. Like, absolutely loved it. And up until that point, I had gone to basketball camps, but they had been local. Like, across the street at the junior high, and you'd go for a few hours, and you'd come home. But this year, I was able to go with a friend of mine. I don't know, it was maybe 30, 40 minutes away, but you got to do a stay overnight basketball camp. And so you show up on a Monday, and I think we were supposed to be there through Saturday, all right? And they gathered us around, um, and they're giving us the instruction, and, you know, here's your dorm, and, you know, don't break the windows, and don't have pillow fights, and try not to kill each other, and, like, just, you know, like, your parents need to pick you up on Saturday in one piece. Like, they're giving us all that. They're talking through the schedule. And one of the things they kept saying over and over again are these very simple words, drink plenty of water. Drink plenty of water. And then they would say it again, make sure you drink water, drink plenty of water, drink plenty of water. And I was like, okay. Yeah, fair, fair enough. That, I got it. I'm not a bright kid, but I'm, you know, I'm like going into fifth grade, and I'm just like, okay, I get it. Drink plenty of water. And then they brought us to where our meals were going to be, and there, in the most glorious thing I'd ever seen in my entire life that had no locks, had no mechanism for taking money, but was just simply there for us to enjoy, was this. And I looked at it, and I said, who needs water, right? Like, and so literally any moment we can because we were also, it was just open. Like we'd have it at meals, but we could also go kind of in between games. And so we'd be practicing and doing drills and all this. And as often as I could, I would get in there for this tasty water that was called Coke, right? And then it was like, well, that's not quite good enough. I, it became fun. Maybe you guys have lived this out where you're just like, what if we mix all of the flavors together, right? Have you, have you done that? So we're just doing that and I think it's amazing, and anytime I'm thirsty, let me go get another Coke, mixed with Sprite, mixed with root beer, mixed with Fanta, mixed with whatever, right? Like, we're just doing that. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, breaks, didn't matter, late at night, even they had a Coke machine on the floor, I'm like, I'm going to buy something. I mean, it's just like nonstop. 
And then Thursday night rolled around, and I've never felt such pain. Um, in my body, I realized I didn't actually know what was going on, and so I had to call like you know the camp counselor, like the camp director, to the nurse, to eventually my parents come and get me. End up at like I don't know if it was the ER, or some sort of hospital. I was there with, with the doctors, basically like you didn't drink water, did you? Um, and it was he's like your body right now is in a terrible amount of pain because you're completely dehydrated. You thought there was this thing that looked appealing, and you kept filling your body with that, and your body is now saying you've made a massive mistake. All right, so there as a fifth grader, I learned that very important lesson. Drink plenty of water, otherwise it goes very badly for you. And I had to miss the, the rest of the camp experience. Now, that sort of silly story, I wish it was silly in that it's like, well, that never plays out in real life, in the spiritual realm, but it does. I mean, what Jesus is saying, and even what the prophet Jeremiah is saying, is listen, there is life-giving water for all that you're gonna need in life and all the difficulties and all the challenges and everything. There's life-giving water, and instead, you say, no, thank you, I think I know best, like an ignorant going into fifth grade boy who maybe thinks he knows everything, all right, and says, rather, hey, I don't need to listen to the camp director, I don't need to listen to my parents, I don't need to listen to the camp nurse, I'll go and take what I want when I want, and that'll be great. And it seemed like it for a while until I thought I was gonna die, right? Like, and what is happening here is Jesus is saying, You've gone and dug your own cisterns. You've been drinking from polluted wells. You needed water, and you've constantly gone back and filled your glass with caffeine and things that will create more dehydration. You're thinking it's satisfying your thirst, and it's only making things more terrible. It's making things worse. It is not a good plan. And so at its most basic level, here's what's happening in these verses. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're the ones that are even leading the other people. They think they've got it figured out. I mean, what is so prevalent in verses 40 to 52? It's just pride. I don't mean just as if it's a simple thing. Like, it literally is what's going to kill them. An unwillingness to admit their thirst. An unwillingness to say, what if this Jesus knows best? An unwillingness to admit that they're actually thirsty. They keep saying, no, no, we've got it figured out. And rather than let Jesus redemptively disrupt their lives, they began to look down their nose. They would even say to some, like there's the servant show up, and they're like, why didn't you arrest him? And they're like, well, no man ever spoke like this. And their response in that moment is, are you fooled too? They think it's the way of foolishness. And what we know, what Jesus is trying to get through to us is what appears to be foolishness is the way to life and flourishing and hope and joy and satisfaction. It is, as C.S. Lewis spoke of, that other country, that other home, the true and better way. That is actually what is on offer here. And they keep pointing themselves and other people to utter foolishness. And even again, making it, they think that they have it all figured out. It's so fascinating by the end. It says, as they say to Nicodemus, who will have this sort of progression. We met him back in chapter three. We're gonna see him later in the book as he's kind of wrestling with the truth claims of Christianity. He stands up for, for Jesus and at least says, hey, we can't judge a man until we actually hear from him. And they respond, well, are you from Galilee too? And they say, investigate, and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They're like, take that. Like, this can't possibly be the Messiah. No prophet no man of God comes from Galilee. The so-called experts of the law, though, are clearly missing it. Because Jonah came from Galilee. Nahum likely came from Galilee. Like, there are people part of their story that had significant roles that 
young Jewish boys and girls would have grown up knowing about. And yet in their arrogance and their pride, they're so disconnected from the story that they're part of, they can't possibly admit that maybe Jesus has what they need. And so it's not just a question for them, but it's a question for us. Perhaps for the first time, but also in an ongoing sense, like will you admit your need? Will you admit your thirst? Jesus comes on the scene and he loudly declares, if anyone is thirsty. Not the people who've been able to satisfy their, their thirst most of the way and just need a little bit more water to come to him. It's recognizing I'm desperate, I can't do it, I've dug the wells, I've went to the soda machine one too many times, I keep doing that thinking it will quench my thirst. Will you admit your thirst? Because that's the ache that drives us, is this thirst. It's why we give so much time and energy to the good gifts that the Lord has given us, and we make them ultimate things. So we keep going to career. We keep going to relationship. We keep going to being liked and to never saying no to people. We keep going to serving. We keep going to trying to be funny. We keep thinking, you know, one more trip or one more whatever. If I get these grades or if I get into the school or if I accomplish this or if I have this amount of money in the bank or if I can do this when I'm retired, all of it speaks to, as Lewis talked about, there's these good desires, but those things, even when we get them, they don't satisfy. So we admit our thirst. And in doing that, here's the good news. We'll end with this. I'm going to jump back up to verse 39 because it's so loaded. It's so beautiful. It's so good. When we come to the point of saying, I get it. Like, I'm thirsty. I've been trying all the other things. It's in that spot that we are ready to receive the grace that Christ has for us, to drink deeply of the living water. How does he provide that for us? Well, the clue is back in verse 39. So if you look back there, he said this as he's speaking about this water. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. This doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit hadn't had done any work throughout the Scriptures up to this point. That, go read the Bible. You'll see that that's not true. But the giving of the Spirit to anyone who would believe that God himself would take up residence in your life and in my life, like that had not yet Happen. And Jesus is saying, but there's going to be this provision. This is going to happen. Well, how is that going to happen? Well, he says, it's not going to happen until I'm glorified. This word, this phrase, this understanding keeps showing up in the book of John, and it speaks to what is upside down, what we wouldn't think of as glorification, but what is ultimately for Jesus' glorification is the cross. And all of this goes back to a group of people in the wilderness, dying of thirst, and God tells his servant Moses, will you strike the rock? I mentioned this before, Exodus 17, look at verses five to seven. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go, and behold, now listen to this, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? They're doubting the presence of God. And what does God do in this moment? It tells, he tells Moses, go and take the staff. You see that rock over there. And he says, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. God is not distant 
God is not off doing something else. God is intimately involved so much so that he says he will go and stand before the rock. And then he tells Moses to strike the rock. This is God's way of saying, Moses, take your staff and you're going to strike me. And when that happens, water will pour out. And what we see a couple thousand years after this, what we see generations later, is that there is the man Jesus who shows up and he is struck. He is put on the cross and the waters of life begin to flow out. This is why the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, he's referencing the Exodus story. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea and they all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food, which is the manna from heaven. And they all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed him. And that rock was Christ. So all the way back in Exodus 17, God goes and he stands before. And there's this type that is happening here that God says, go ahead and strike the rock. And then generations later, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the new temple, Jesus, God himself shows up and says, I'm willing to be struck so that you might actually have the waters of life to drink from and that would flow from you. It is no coincidence, it is no accident as you think about all that was happening historically, right? Priests, large golden pitcher, they go to the altar there, silver bowl of water, silver bowl of wine, they begin to overflow, they mix together the water and the wine. And then we get in John chapter 19, after Jesus is there crucified on the cross, Jesus gives up his spirit, he's declared that it is finished, and there, just to make sure that he's really been put to death, a spear goes through what? Through his belly, where Jesus had said, water, streams of living water will flow from my belly. It says this, but one of the soldiers placed, uh, pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. Is that just a coincidence? Is that just an accidental detail there, the blood and the water? Or is this a way of making sure that we see when the silver bowl of the water and the wine were poured there and it went there and it overflowed off of the altar and created this stream? This is the way of letting us know in no uncertain terms, like the living water is Jesus. The rock that was struck is Jesus. That's what's providing life. And when we get that, we realize, oh my goodness, he died in my place. He did this for me. I get to drink deeply of this. And yes, it will seem risky. And yes, we'll doubt at times. And yes, there'll be times where we're like, yeah, but is he enough? Can I trust him? Can I trust his goodness? And the invitation is, anyone who's thirsty, come and drink. We'll close with this. You might be familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia. Perhaps you've read the books. Maybe you've seen the movies. And there is a particular scene. I was reminded of this in reading through Kent Hughes' commentary on, this, on, the, on the book of John. And he, he tells of a, a story um, in the silver chair, I, I believe it is. And the Aslan, as the Christ figure shows up, Aslan is this terrifying uh, lion, right? Um, and so um, terrifying but good, but still a lion. So lions are, are terrifying, um, unless they're from Detroit, but that's a whole other thing. Anyway, so... Um, and so the, the, lion, the lion is there, and Jill, this young girl, she sees the lion. And she has the natural response that a young girl in the woods all alone when seeing a lion would do. She runs, and she runs, and she runs, and she runs. She's worn out, she's tired, and she's just longing 
to have a cool drink of water. She literally has gotten to the point, she's so exasperated, she's so worn out, she's in such panic, the anxiety level is through the roof. I mean, her whole body is just in, you know, it's like fight or flight, and she's in full-on flight mode at this point, trying to outrun this lion. And eventually she comes to a spot, just complete, she's just almost like completely undone. She doesn't know if she's gonna make it, and she hears the trickling of water. She hears this sort of babbling brook. She hears this stream, and so she, she makes her way to it. She's suddenly overjoyed. She's like, oh, there's water. My life is going to be spared. But then in that very same moment, she looks up, and there standing on the banks of that shore, of that river, of that stream is none other than the lion. And once again, she's terrified. And here's this interaction that takes place. The lion looks at her and says, are you not thirsty, said the lion. And the young girl, Jill, replied, I am dying of thirst. Well, then drink, said the lion. Uh, may I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. And the lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at his motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. And it didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that, and her mind suddenly made itself up it was the worst thing she ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand, and it was the coldest, most refreshing water that she had ever tasted. And commenting on this, Ken Hughes in his commentary says this, do you see what Lewis is saying? When you come to the water, you are coming to a lion and you must come on the lion's terms, and you have to yield yourself by faith in order to get the water. And some of us need to realize that we are thirsty, that we need that water so badly that we are going to die without it. We need to step out on faith, yielding to the lion of the tribe of Judah and receive the water of eternal life. Trusting Jesus. I wish I could say, oh, that's super easy, yeah. Go ahead and do it. it. It can be hard. It can be difficult. There are things where we wonder, okay, he's provided in the past, but will he provide again? Can I trust him in this situation? And the invitation of Jesus is recognize your thirst, admit your thirst, and come open-handed, empty-handed to him and to drink deeply and to enjoy his grace and to soak it in and put the fear aside like Jill in the story and just say, I know, yes, things are terrifying and things might seem frightening, but the lion here is good. And it's what is on offer here is these rivers of living water. That's the good news. That's the good news that we get to celebrate. And so, church, I want to pray for us as the worship team comes back up and we're going to respond by singing together but also as a means to prepare our hearts for communion, for the Lord's Supper. And so if you're a follower of Christ, 
We invite you during this song, if you're here in person, come get the, the elements and take it back with you and we'll partake together after this next song is done. If you're at home and you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to gather elements there. But I encourage you to be thinking through this. Take some time to repent. What cisterns have you dug? What thing have you kept going after thinking it will satisfy? And then remember what is on offer. And let's rejoice together in that. So let me pray for us as we prepare our hearts for communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness and your grace. We thank you for these living waters that flow from Jesus. And then as we taste that, we begin to have living waters that can flow from us. And we can be part of this redemptive movement. We continually drink of your grace, Jesus, and we get to point other people to where we've found that living water, that we can be part of your, your work of seeing your kingdom expand. We're so thankful to be part of that. I pray that even today as we feast on this meal, freely given to us, your, your body, your blood that was shed, I pray that as we partake, that we would be nourished, that we would be encouraged, that we would experience as the means of grace that it is, and that we would be overcome in the best possible way that this is the only source of life, that it's found in you. So we thank you for the invitation that always stands to all of us who are thirsty to come. We don't come to purchase, we come to receive what you have purchased for us on the cross. So God, we pray that in this time that you would get your glory and that we as your people would experience deep and abiding joy. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.